Dad the Man, the guy who's living life the right way by loving and leading his family. World class at his craft and admired by many, but more importantly, he sets the tone for what a great man, husband, and father looks like. That's who Dad the Man is. And the truth is, as men, husbands, and fathers, we experience and struggle with so many of the same things. And it's time we recognize that we're all in this together. So drop your ego at the door and join us in the conversation. Welcome to Dad the Man. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Dad the Man podcast. My name is Brendan Wall, and I am your host. And today, I have one ask for you. If you are enjoying the show, if you enjoy this conversation, or if you learn anything, please do me a huge favor and share the show with one person. I cannot thank you enough for your support, for your help in getting the word out about the show, and for helping us to further our mission. So, today's guest is none other than the legendary coach, Mark Richt, or Poopa, as his grandkids call him. Coach Rick played quarterback at the University of Miami and then threw his hat in the ring for the NFL before turning his sights towards college football. The day before leaving to begin his coaching career as a GA down in Baton Rouge, he received a phone call and a job offer from the late Bobby Bowden, which he accepted. Mark refers to this pivotal moment as a spiritual marker in his life, as it was Coach Bowden who raised him as a young quarterback's coach, a molder of young men, and most importantly, brought him to his faith in Jesus Christ. Mark met his wife of 34 years, Catherine, while he was a GA in Tallahassee and she was a cheerleader. Mark went on to be the OC at East Carolina for one season before returning to Florida State to serve as quarterback's coach for three years and then being promoted to offensive coordinator. In his 10-year run at Florida State, he coached two Heisman Trophy winning quarterbacks, won seven consecutive ACC titles, and won two national championships. So after 10 years with the Seminoles, he took the head coaching job at the University of Georgia, where he would lead the program for 15 years, win two SEC championships, and leave as the second winningest coach in program history. After leaving Georgia in 2015, he returned to his alma mater as the head coach of the Miami Hurricanes, where he won ACC Coach of the Year in his first season and stoked a long-awaited fire within the Miami program donating $1 million of his own money to kick off the fundraising for a $34 million practice facility project in Miami. After three seasons back at his alma mater, and after a near-fatal heart attack, Coach Rick made the call to retire after the 2018 season. He now works as an ACC Network college football studio analyst, and this fall he became an author upon the release of his new book, Make the Call, which is equal parts entertaining and insightful, and I would recommend it to anyone. And also this past weekend, the University of Georgia held a halftime ceremony to honor Coach Rick and the legacy he left and the road he paved for future Bulldog success. One thing I really appreciate about Coach Rick is that he is a guy with his priorities in order and he never shies away from his faith. But above it all, he's an incredible man, husband and father, and it is an absolute honor to host him on this show. So here's my conversation with the Mark Rick. And we are live. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Dad the Man podcast. My name is Brendan Wall, and I am your host. And today we have a guest that I am so excited to talk to. He is a husband. He is a father. He is a grandfather. He's the first grandfather we've had the opportunity to speak to on the show. He is a legendary college football coach. He is an ACC Network college football studio analyst. And more, most recently, he is the author of his new book, Make the Call. It's an unbelievable book. With us today, the one and only Coach Mark Richt. Now, Coach, before I let you jump in, I'm going to level with you right off the bat. So, you know, obviously you spent 15 years as the head coach at University of Georgia, and I'm a huge Auburn fan. So I was, bo- <laughs> I was born into the Auburn family, always been a fan, always will be a fan. And when I think about, you know, your tenure when you were at Georgia, if I remember correctly, you guys were about 10 and five against us during that time. So it seemed like you always, more often than not, at least, seemed to get the better of us. So when I think back on that time, you know, as the as the crazy, emotional, irrational college football fan that I am, a lot of my memories of you involved me, you know, screaming at my television on those Saturdays in early November in the fall during those years. But but besides all of that, I've always had so much respect for you just just watching from the outside in and the way that you you know led the program and operated as, as a man in the program. 
you know, being so proud in your faith, wearing it on your sleeve and not backing down from it is something I have so much respect for. And then also you always seem to have this level of um, just apparent intentionality and, and level of care that you took into not just, you know, with the players that, that you coach, not just coaching them to be the best football players that they could be. Um, and obviously you did a great job of that. You guys had some incredible success and put a lot of guys into the league, but more importantly, helping them grow into the, to the young men that God called them to be. So all that being said, I have so much respect for you, not just for the wins on the field, but for who you are as a person. So I thank you for leading from the front and be, being such a great example for the rest of us, men, husbands, and fathers to follow. And uh, thank you so much for making some time for us. It's an honor to have you on. Coach Mark Richt, welcome to the show. Good. Yeah, it's good to be here. I appreciate the opportunity and I'm thankful for what you're trying to get accomplished. That's a great thing. Awesome. Well, thank you. So I want to start the conversation today um, talking about your book. I would love for you to kind of dive into maybe maybe what called you to to write the book. Let's start there. Right. Well, I was coaching at Georgia and a, a literary agent got up with me somehow. I forgot exactly how, but said, hey, how would you like to write a book? I'm like, well, I never really thought about writing a book, uh, especially while I was still coaching. I, I didn't think the story was finished, so to speak. <laughs> so I kind of backed off of it. But then he kept wearing me out to where I said, OK, let's try it. So as the head coach of Georgia, I'm trying to write this book. And uh, we had a short window of time to get it done in the offseason. And it just it, it didn't get done. I mean, we're proofreading chapter one and two days are starting. So I'm like, <laughs> forget this thing. Uh, I gave him the upfront money back and said, you know, well, maybe another time. So I didn't do it then. And then um, after I retired from coaching, after the 2018 season at Miami, he calls me back. He says, how about that book? And I said, well, I don't know. Let me think about it. So as I'm thinking about it, within a month or so, I have this, massive heart attack and barely survived that bad boy and yep. uh, when i came out of it one of the first things i thought was if i'm going to write a book i might better hurry up you never know what <laughs> yeah. tomorrow will bring so that's kind of what got me to the point of doing it and um, you know make the call is a uh, kind of a play on words it's uh, uh obviously if you're calling plays every 40 seconds in a game, you're, you're making a call. Same thing as a head coach. You make calls in games. You make calls in recruiting and discipline and things of that nature. So, you know, making the calls is basically, you know, making decisions. And so the book's about a lot of decisions that I made. Behind the scenes, look at some particular plays and moments and with football and decisions I made with players and family and faith. Uh, it's just, it's a pretty cool, you know, wide open memoir basically it's in chronological order with a few little flashbacks here and there but uh it was a lot of fun to do and we wrote it my uh literary um my co-writer uh lawrence kimbrough and i actually wrote it during covid and uh so it was a good time to write a book there's nothing else to do and i think we did a pretty good job yeah no doubt about it i was telling you before we started recording here i've i've uh, I, I did the audio book and, and I've listened to it twice now and, and I'm halfway through it again for the third time. And it's, it's, I found it's one of those books where it's every time I listen to it, I pick up something else and it's a really deep book. And I love the presentation of it because the stories are, are very captivating. Like hearing you reflect on your times, you know, whether it's coming up from, from high school to college with, with NFL ambitions to be a quarterback and then kind of transitioning to, becoming a coach and coaching under coach Bowden and then moving into the Georgia years and the Miami years and the heart attack, like you mentioned, hearing you reflect on all the stories that are, are in there and then tying it into the biblical scripture as well. And then just, just raw life lessons. Like it's a book that um, I, I've begun recommending it to, to anyone and everyone. It's one of those books that where I just say universal uh, recommendation anybody can benefit from it so I've really enjoyed it myself and, and highly recommend anybody else um, you know pick up a copy so when you were writing the book it, it sounds like you had a, a co-writer that you're working with too uh, what was that process like I could have to imagine there's a lot of right. emotion that comes that comes up when you when you explore memories like that at that depth what was that process like well what happened was Lawrence came to uh, 
my home and spent two full days, probably eight to 10 hour days. And we just, I just told stories uh, and uh, he would prompt me uh, for maybe a story during a different, during a, a certain time frame, just to kind of make the book flow. Mm-hmm. And I found that there was just a massive amount of stories to tell. And, you know, the, the one thing about telling stories is when you tell your story, a lot of times you're telling somebody else's story as well. And uh, I wanted to be very careful not to tell something that was private to someone else that might hurt them. And so in the process of writing it, uh, I ended up making a few phone calls to former players and coaches and trying to get the facts right, number one, and then also mm-hmm. getting permission to say this, that, or the other that might have happened in what would normally be a private meeting. And in doing so, I got more insight into the, uh, you know, the stories that we were telling because I didn't know the, everything in the background, so to speak. So mm-hmm. it was very, uh, very fun to do that. Uh, and the one thing about my co-writer, Lawrence Kimbrough, he was he was a real stickler on detail. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'd tell a story and he'd be like, Coach, that was not 2012, that was 2011. <laughs> or, you know, what the opposing coach wasn't this guy, it was that guy. <laughs> so, you know, he was the fact checker for me. And uh, and the other thing he did is if there were certain uh, moments in a game, he would go back on YouTube or wherever he found it. And he would watch, actually watch the plays that I was describing to him in the stories. Mm-hmm. And so you might see, uh, he saw things like what the fans were doing or what was happening in the peripheral where, you know, Ali saw it from my point of view on the sideline. So I learned a lot more about some of these stories just because of the diligence of Lawrence Kimbrough. That's great. Yeah. That, that had to be fun. And, and I'm, I'm imagining you sitting there kind of calling back on the old coaches and players and having an experience or an opportunity to reminisce with them and kind of relive oh, yeah. some of it. I bet that was a lot of fun to do that. It was. And, and if I if I do write another book, it's just going to be about the players that I coached and, and their stories, because there there's so many interesting stories that I just flat out could not. We had to cut so much just to keep the book from being too long. Yeah, uh, it was crazy. But if I ever do a second book, it'll probably be more in tune with uh, players, especially and, and their stories. Is there, um, so you mentioned a lot got cut. Is there anything that comes to mind as a story that maybe didn't make the cut on the book? Maybe it's a, maybe it's a player story. Maybe it's something else that um, maybe yeah, you wanted to put it in there. Yeah. You know, off the top of my head, I can't think of it, but it was, it was, it was always about the players. Cause mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I, I told, <laughs> I told so many stories to Lawrence, his head was spinning in the beginning and, I give him credit for trying to make some sense out of it all. Uh, But there were many stories and a lot of the side stories started to come to mind when I would make those phone calls and, and say, Hey, how do you remember it? Or is this, is this what you said? Or do you remember saying that? Or, or do you remember this guy doing this or that? And before you know it, they're, they're telling a whole new story. So uh, I would do a, a bunch of interviewing of players and, and get the real, Getting the real down and dirty on everything. There we go. Well, if you do write another one, I'll, I'll definitely be uh, be reading it. That's for sure. So in the book, you talk a lot about Coach Bowden and the the role that he played in your life. I would love to hear you maybe just reflect a little bit on the impact that he had on you as, as a man, as a Christian, um, maybe less to do with football, but how he impacted your life in that way and how you show up as a man, husband, and father for your family now. Right. Well, you know, I was very fortunate to break into the league, to break into coaching under Coach Bowden. I mean, it was just basically a miracle. And uh, I actually was had a U-Haul packed ready to go to Baton Rouge as a graduate assistant at LSU. The night before I left, I got a call from Coach Bowden who had an opportunity for me to not only be a graduate assistant coach, but also help him, assist him coach the quarterbacks. And so uh, I couldn't turn that down. But if he'd called me the next night and I was in Baton Rouge, I know I never would have turned, I never would have changed my mind, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I called the people at Baton Rouge and said, hey, you know, at LSU and said, I'm, I'm going with Coach Bowden. So just that in itself was kind of a, 
just God directed my path, so to speak. And when you look back on it, there's spiritual markers in your life. And that was a huge one for me to be under the influence of Coach Bowden. And as you mentioned, he had a lot to do with my faith. And uh, quickly as I can, there was a story of a player in year two of me being a graduate assistant in 1986. He was shot and killed at a party on campus during an open date. And uh, the next day, Coach Bowden had a uh, team meeting and basically said, I don't know where Pablo is. His name was Pablo Lopez, mm-hmm. offensive lineman. He said, um, he said, you guys are, you know, and he kind of, he, he shared the gospel. He just said, there's a God in heaven who loves us and he wants us to spend eternity with him in heaven. But the problem with that is the standard for heaven is perfection and none of us can be that. So we need a savior. And that's Jesus. So, you know, he kind of spread the gospel. And then at the end of his talk, he said, uh, men, Pablo used to sit in that seat right there. Now he's gone. He said, you guys are 18 to 22 years old. And you think you're going to live forever just like Pablo. He said, if that was you instead of Pablo last night, do you know where you'd spend eternity? So he's talking to the players, but I'm in the back of the room as a young graduate assistant coach. And the Holy Spirit was speaking to me and some seeds that were planted by a teammate in college came to fruition. And uh, I knew I needed Jesus. And I, you know, I was thinking where I'd be going if it was me that night and I knew it was a bad place. So the next day I knocked on coach Bounds door and, and I came in and he uh, said, come on in buddy. Of course he calls you buddy when he forgets your name, but (laughs) yeah. So anyway, I said, I know you were talking to those players yesterday but uh do you mind if a young coach comes in i said i I need jesus so i prayed to receive christ in his office and uh everything changed after that my my spirit and soul truly became right with god and that'll never change hallelujah you know there's peace in that Mm -hmm. and um i had a new goal and that was just to try to live a life that would please god and uh not necessarily easy goal but a simple goal that's kind of how I've been trying to operate ever since. Yeah, that's that's an incredible story, and uh, you know, it's 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 really cool to, I guess, for you to to hear you reflect on that, and Coach Bowden directly having that impact. But I mean, that's that's like you said, that's a that's a that's a marker in your life that you can look back on and say, "Hey, this is God directing my steps." And the the book the 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 book that you wrote it it's what I, like I said before, all the stories are just incredible. And I've, I've loved listening to them and reading them. And, and I've been able to, in reading the story, apply some of the lessons that you put in there that you really baked deeply into that book, into how I operate as, as a husband and father within my family. Um, I've got a couple, a couple here, a couple prompts, maybe some stories from the book. I'd love to hear you maybe reflect on one of them. My one of my favorite ones was the dog pile moment against uh, against Florida. Do you mind? Actually, uh, well, the dog pile was against Alabama in overtime, but the 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 time we were, we celebrated on the field. Yes, uh, that might have been in the dog pile chapter, though. I know where you're going. Yeah. Go ahead. Do you, do you mind uh, do you mind just kind of telling us that story? I I thought that one was so great, and then and then yeah. I'll kind of chime in with with what I derived from it. Well, you know, we played Florida every year in Jacksonville mm-hmm. and um, not really a, a neutral site, in my opinion, in Jacksonville, Definitely not. Florida. <laughs> anyway, that's a whole nother story. Hey, let, let's have a neutral site at the Georgia Dome. How about that? But anyway, <laughs> I couldn't get that done. <laughs> so we're playing them. And, uh, we, you know, when you talked about my record against Auburn, it's the opposite against Florida. I was five and 10 against Florida. So we didn't have many great moments, but the one we did, we're playing uh, Vanderbilt two weeks prior. There's always an open day before Florida, usually. Mm-hmm. So we're playing Vanderbilt. We barely win. We're at Vanderbilt. We don't have a lot of juice. And I'm like, you know, we got we to gotta find a way to get some energy on this team because we're just not, I, I, we're going to get our butts kicked if we go to Florida and don't have some juice, right? So mm-hmm. I told the guys, I said, look, when we play Florida, after the first score, first touchdown, I said, I want everybody to celebrate hard enough to get a flag. If you don't celebrate hard enough to get a flag, I'm going to run your tails, you know? Mm-hmm. And so 
that was something I did at Florida State as an offensive coordinator. And so I meant for the team on the field that scored 11 guys to celebrate hard enough to get a, a flag. I knew that would juice up the fans and juice up the team. So in the two weeks leading up to the game, uh, in practice, the guys would score against the scout team and they'd slam it over the goalpost or do a dance or something. And so I didn't really like the, the type of celebration they were, they were giving. And so the night before the game, I, I said, let me make this clear. A couple things. Number one, if, if we don't score a first touchdown until the fourth quarter, we're down by 40. We're not, we're not <laughs> celebrating. Okay, forget it. It has to happen in the first quarter, but we're not doing it. Mm-hmm. That was number one. I said, number two, you guys have been celebrating in an individual, individualistic way. I want it to be a team celebration, not an individual celebration. So I want the team to celebrate hard enough to get a flag. So when I said the team to the team, I meant the guys on the field, not the entire team. Yep. So, but they heard if, if, they, if the team didn't celebrate hard enough, everybody's going to run after, you know, <laughs> so, so anyway, we first drive of the game, I think we got a turnover, ran the ball down the field, got to third and one. No, Sean Moreno reaches it over the goal line, goal line. Everybody, you know, they call out, they signify a touchdown and they start dancing around, which I knew they would, the guys on the field. But then all of a sudden the bench cleared and I'm freaking out going, what in the world's going on? And by the time the camera's on me, I was, I was fired up because they were fired up, but I, I yep. truly didn't know the whole team was going to do it. Everybody ran on the field <laughs> except for one guy, Daniel Ellerby. I'm like, Daniel, what are you doing here? He said, Coach, I'm so deep in your doghouse. There's no way I'm going out there. But uh, we got two penalties and uh, actually had to kick off from the eight-yard line. And that's kind of how it happened. But the thing that people don't remember is that play went to review. It was so close. Mm-hmm. If we'd have been an inch short, it'd have been third and 31. <laughs> All right. And we probably would have lost that game. But that probably would have been the last game I was coaching at Georgia. <laughs> so that couple inches by no saved the day. Oh, that's incredible. Um, yeah, I, I love that story. And and in the book, you you kind of tie that into this lesson of, you know, how we're, we seem to just be conditioned in life to move quickly, right? Like we're, we're, we're moving. It's, it's business as usual. And we can kind of, I guess, get not burned out, but just accustomed or desensitized to monotonies in life that we oftentimes just forget to look around and appreciate what we have. You know, we yeah, get, you, so- gotta, you gotta remember to celebrate the good times. And that's the thing about coaching is so often we have a great victory. We jump around in the locker room and then it's like on to the next team. And, uh, you know, I've, I've learned over time just to do a little bit better job of celebrating the victories and also uh, celebrating the small victories in life, uh, doing things as a, as a leader of a home or as a leader of a team. When you see something good, you know, brag on that kid. Say something, you know, look for the positive and reinforce the positive with, you know, a pat on the back sometimes that's all a person needs is someone to say good job and truly mean it. So, you know, there's a lot of power in our words as, as leaders, whether we're coaches or businessmen or heads of the household. And, uh, you know, it's just so important that we speak life into people that God has put in our authority. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, it's like, I, I, it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently, especially since here, you know, reading your book and, you know, I think about that, like whether I'm, you know, moving too fast, thinking about work, 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 or maybe I'm, I'm pursuing something or whatever it is, just trying to take a second and look around and say, my wife's right here next to me. I got two beautiful kids. They're healthy. Like life is so good right here. There's, of course, right. there's other things we want to accomplish and go after and pursue and all this. That's all great. But just taking a second to be like, look at my left, look to my right. Life's good. Let's all right. Let's yes. appreciate that and then operate from that uh, from that standpoint. Right. And that reminds me of a game. You know, as a coach, I was always so ultimately focused on calling the game. It was, I was actually offensive coordinator at Florida State, and we were playing Florida at Florida. And for whatever reason, just before kick, 
I looked, I just looked around mm-hmm. and, and looked at the stands and looked at the players and looked at all the pageantry of the day. And I'm like, this is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sometimes you just forget mm-hmm. to smell the roses and uh, appreciate the moments that you're in. And uh, I, I just learned to do a little better job of that the older I got. Yeah. I mean, how cool is that? We're, we're here sitting here talking however many years later and that like, I'm sure you just went there in your mind and could still visualize it because you took that second at that point in time yeah. to say, man, look at this. This is great. Um, right. I mean, who gets to do this? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's such a, to me, it's just such a powerful place to, to operate from. Like it's just this, just a place, a, a place of gratitude and really appreciating what God's done for us to this point. Like, no matter what else is going on, like to be able to operate from that, I guess, standpoint to me, is just, it's so powerful. So I appreciate you writing that, writing that into the book. I think that's awesome. There's a, there's another part of the book that I, I, I kind of want to use as a segue to turn towards your experience, I guess, pouring into the players that you coached. There's a part in the book um, where you talk about how Father's Day is always your busy, your busiest phone action day that you have all, all year. And that struck me when, when you wrote that in the book, when I read that, and I thought about the, the impact that you've been able to make on so many young men, men's lives. And when I think about that, you know, like you've got four kids of your own, but you also basically played a part in raising these hundreds of young men as well. And it's, you know, people say all the time that kids are, kids can be our greatest teacher, right? So I wanted to kind of flip that around and, and ask you with, with all the players that you coached. Is there anything that maybe they taught you along the way or something that really stands out that you've kind of derived or, or learned maybe directly or indirectly from the players that you coach? Right. Well, I think the biggest thing is no matter how hard of a shell they got, uh, there's, they've got a good heart on the inside and they just need somebody to help them pull it out. And sometimes, uh, you know, guys act like they don't want discipline act like they don't want boundaries mm-hmm. but if somebody gives you boundaries and somebody's willing to discipline you it teaches them that you love them you know you care about them and once they understand where you're coming from you know they can accept it much better and uh, I can't tell you how many guys I coached that you know years later they'd call me and say hey I'm I want to call you coach and apologize for all the stupid things I did back in the day. I'm a coach. Now I'm dealing with a bunch of knuckleheads and I'm um, trying to keep straight. But, uh, you know, a lot of the guys show up with it. Some guys get it while they're there and some guys don't get it till a couple of years down the road. And I'm talking about getting the fact that, you know, discipline is a form of love. Yeah, that's that's a powerful message too. I mean, that's that's something I like I was alluding to before. My kids are little; they're five and almost three, and nice. um, I, we're we're kind of I guess growing out of that phase of babysitting them to really parenting them. And right. there's, a, there's a redefinition of what the word love means. A discipline comes comes into play there, and it's uh, right. It's a it's a learning curve for us. We're working through it, trying to figure out what works. But I will right. say to your point before about you know affirmations and, and speaking positively into uh into people I've, I've taken that lesson and tried to apply it into my kids and you know I think there's you know from a punishment standpoint I almost think about it like there's trying to kind of lean on the natural consequences of whatever they did and kind of just let right. them deal with that and then also use affirmations and positive talk to kind of lead them into a new direction right well I think when they're really little and they can't be reasoned with yet mm-hmm. You know, they have to have a little fear, fear mm-hmm. of a spank in the bottom or whatever it is. And that's just to keep them safe from running across the street when they're not supposed to, you know. Right. But as they get a little older, when you discipline, there will be some punishment involved. There'll be something to sting them, whether it's, you know, taking away a cell phone or, or you know, whatever it may be, grounding them, how, you know, whatever, you know, is punitive. There'll be some punitive, but, but you also need to... Uh, educate them and let them know why you're doing what you're doing and why it's harmful to them. And then in the end, you gotta, you gotta hug them. You gotta love them still. So they need some punitive stuff. They need some, you know, education and they definitely need the love and going back on the positive stuff. My, my wife, Catherine's biggest uh, contribute 
the, she contributed the most to my coaching career by always, she would always ask me, do the guys know you believe in them? Mm -hmm. And I'd say, well, they got to do something for me to believe in them. She said, that's not how it works. She says, you got to believe in them first and then the behavior will follow. And she was right. You know, and you don't, you don't want to give false praise, but on the other hand, you want to help people know what they can become, you know, help, help paint that picture of what they can become in a very positive way. And that's, it's just huge for those young people. Yeah, that's powerful. I hope, I hope everybody heard that. I think that's so cool that she, she came in and injected that. And I can't, I can't even imagine the difference that that makes too for, you know, as a coach and you're trying to wrangle in however many guys, just them knowing, Hey, coach believes in us, coach has got us. And that like, give them something to live up to rather than something to overcome. I think that's, yeah, um, that's, that's so, yeah. So I'd, I'd love to hear you, uh, reflect on what it was like trying to balance life in general as a college football coach, as a husband, as a father, it's one of the things we get asked about the most uh, when I ask what our listeners want to hear our guests talk about. And it's, man, how do the, like, there's so much going on. How do you balance it? And that, when I was at right. Auburn, I, I actually volunteered in the recruiting department. And um, so I was around a little bit. So I got to see a little bit of what it's, what it really takes from college football coaches, the commitment, not just the coaching, but the recruiting being a, just a crazy endeavor in itself. So considering all that, and, you know, thinking about work-life balance, quote unquote, work-life balance, how did you balance that? How, what was your approach to that? Well, a couple of things. One was, you know, my wife, Catherine, she understood there were times when I had to, I had to do what I had to do. She knew when I needed to be gone. And, but she also knew every time I had a free moment, mm -hmm. I wanted to be at home. I wanted to be with the kids. So when I was gone, she wasn't at home saying, well, your dad's gone again. And all mm -hmm. that kind of thing. She would always, you know, build me up. But another kind of trick of the trade, and I forgot where I learned it, but there was a street kind of midpoint between my house and work. Mm -hmm. And so on the way to work, when I crossed that street, I would, I would think about football. I'd think about my job. But then on the way home, when I crossed that street, I tried to have all my focus on being home. Because you could be home physically, I mean, be home physically, but not be there mentally. Mm -hmm. And uh, your kids, your kids figure that out in a heartbeat. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. They have a line in the sand that you drew there. Um, and yeah, there's, there's a, there's a point in there that, that you made. And I think that's so prevalent today, especially with all the distractions that we have with cell phones and, and everything, social media and everything it's being physically present and being mentally present can be two very different things. And that's something I've had to, man, I've, I've been guilty of that. And I've been the guy who's always answering emails and stuff or scrolling social media. And my kids are trying to get my attention and I'm just stuck nice. on my phone. That's a big, when, I think they, a big when, they, when they jump in the bed and say, get up, let's play. No matter how tired you are, you got to get your butt up. You know? <laughs> There's you only one answer there. to that question. Let's go. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, so you, you mentioned your wife, Catherine. Um, I'd love to hear you speak a little bit about, about her. Um, I'll, I'll quote um, another Auburn rival, the legendary Bear Bryant. You still always say that there's a, there should be a special place in heaven for coaches' wives given as busy as you guys, as busy as you are, as demanding as the job is, I'd love to hear you talk about the role that she played in your family during those years and maybe how you uh, supported her in that role. Right. Well, we knew being head coach was going to change everything. And uh, it was going to change our lives in a lot of way. And one of the, one of them was going to be time that I was going to have. And also we knew there's going to be a, a good little bit of notoriety that comes mm -hmm. along with that job. And yep. so we had a goal of trying to have as normal of a family life as we could have. Uh, and that meant, you know, me going to little league baseball games and me doing some grocery shopping and, you know, us doing things as a family, going to church, make sure we, we scheduled our week where we could go to church together as a family and have a, you know, have a meal after church before we go in and start grinding away at the football stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, one of the things we also did that was really cool uh, that uh, Catherine helped me uh, organize was every every breakfast, 
uh, I would have a, we'd, we'd have breakfast with the kids. Mm-hmm. That was kind of our family meal. We'd have a little devotional at the table and then all the kids would load up in the car and I'd drive them to school. So that was something I learned under coach Bowden. He always wanted to know when we're going to see our kids every day. When are you going to see them? You're going to see them in the morning. You're going to see them at night. And so, um, we chose to see him in morning and start our staff meeting by about eight 30 mm-hmm. at Florida state did the same thing at Georgia when I became head coach, because I wanted our coaches to stay connected to their wives and children as well. So that was a really important time that, you know, Catherine helped make happen. Yeah. That's uh, the other thing I, I hate to cut you off, but no, I, I don't ahead. want to forget this part. As we all know, she was the water girl too. Yep. And, uh, you know, to have your wife on the sideline and supporting you, supporting the players uh, in a in a real big, tangible way was, uh, you know, meant meant a lot to me. And it meant a lot to our kids and it meant a lot to the Bulldog Nation. That's so cool to get to share all those experiences. I'm sure there were so many that, you know, on the field, practice field, game day, all that stuff, getting to share that with with her as well. So you guys have been married now. If, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's been over three decades now. Is that right? Uh, yeah, 34 years. So what do you think the key has been? Uh, I'll ask a similar question two different ways. What, what do you think the key has been to that long of a happy marriage or what, maybe what's a lesson? Maybe you right. learned it the hard way. Yeah, well, I think number one is, and I don't know how well people can see me, but mm-hmm. if God's up here mm-hmm. and Catherine and I are down here, um, if we're pursuing God, guess, guess where we end up for both. If we're both pursuing God as our primary relationship, we end up in the same place. We end up together. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, Catherine better than me was able to submit to the Holy spirit on issues and attitudes that sometimes grow into big problems. And so I was really, uh, I learned a lot from her to just truly be able to humble myself. And one of the things I do uh, tell young couples as advice, especially the men, I'll say, you got to decide what's more important, being right or your relationship. Because so many times when we're discussing a topic or arguing about something, we want to prove we're right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And even, you know, even if we think we're right, how important <laughs> is it? to be right compared to the feelings of your wife and the relationship you have with her. So it's just not that important to be right all the time. I can tell you that because you're usually wrong. Usually wrong about 80% of the time anyway. Yeah, no doubt about it. That's uh, that's gold. Uh, So let's, let's transition a little bit. I want to talk to you about your kids. You guys have four kiddos um, and two of your kids, I believe you, you adopted from Ukraine. Right. I would love to hear you maybe reflect on what that experience was like. And, and, I, and I, asked, I asked this almost selfishly because my wife and I are in the process of adopting right now. We're, Great. We haven't uh, matched or anything like that. We're doing a domestic adoption. We're going through that matching process. But I'd love to hear you reflect on uh, what that experience was like for you guys. Well, first of all, uh, when it comes to kids, truthfully, the, the new sheriffs in town are the are the grandkids okay so <laughs> we'll get to them later oh yeah and that's why i got my shirt here my poopaw <laughs> that's my grandfather name but anyway that's another story um yeah john the oldest david next uh two boys that we had biologically and then as you mentioned we adopted two from ukraine zach and anya um that was a wild trip that was a leap a huge leap of faith um, we had some people in our Sunday school class in Tallahassee that had adopted in Ukraine. And we just felt like it was, God was calling us to do it. So we did it. But, uh, I mean, for me, the process in Ukraine took at least a month. Okay. But I couldn't, mm-hmm. I couldn't be there a month. I could only be there a week. Mm-hmm. So I, I stick my wife on a plane to Ukraine <laughs> by herself. I mean, it was, just, I, I mean, I was like, I wanted to back out, you know, at the last second, but we did it mm-hmm. and she did it. And then I've caught up with her about three weeks into it and we made the, the adoption final. But, um, you know, Zach and Anya came from the same orphanage. They're not 
uh, blood relatives, but they are obviously brother and sister now. And uh, it was it was wild. I mean, the fate of those children uh, in in Ukraine and in a lot of orphanages, a lot of orphan, orphanages around the world, it's pretty bleak. You know, at a certain age, they turn them loose on the street. They got to fend for themselves. So, just to be able to do that was a blessing to us, and hopefully, a blessing to them too. Yeah, no doubt. A uh, leap of faith, no doubt as well. I, I can imagine what, it, what it's like doing that internationally. Uh, so you you talked about, you mentioned your grandkids, the new sheriffs in town. Tell us about the grandkids. What's the, what's, what's the grandpa life all about? Uh, they just love me. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just going to be honest with you. They're, they're young enough to think I'm still cool. And uh, I play with them as best I can. Of course, you know, my wife's name is Lolly. Mm-hmm. Grand parent name mine's poopaw she wanted lolly and pop i didn't want to be pop so i said hey let's be poopaw and moomaw she didn't like that so she got her name lolly i got my name poopaw but anyway uh truthfully we get to keep them uh once at least once a week they spend the night give john and anna a little bit of a break and uh we just have a ball with them and uh another truth is that they love lolly <laughs> more than poop all but yeah so I'm, how the, old? I'm the play i'm the play guy so how old are they uh jaden is seven and zoe is three and they actually got another baby coming december 25th is, is the due date so wow got a got a christmas baby coming and not sure if it's a boy or girl yet yeah that's uh that's so exciting so what's your what's your favorite thing to do with the grandkids uh believe it or not it's a game called dog catcher Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So they, as soon as they get to the house, there's two games we play. One is dog catcher and that's where Mm -hmm. I'm the dog catcher and they're the, they're the stray dogs. So they're crawling around the house and I got to collect them and take them to the dog pound. And then while they're at the dog pound, a family comes and adopts them (laughs) and puts them in their car and takes them home. And so it's kind of like how dog catcher goes. But the other one is uh, Nanny Nanny Boo Boo, okay? Oh, yeah. So they'll, they'll say Nanny Nanny Boo Boo, and I'll be like, what'd you say? Yeah. They'll say Nanny Nanny Boo Boo. I said, did you say Nanny Nanny Boo Boo? They'll be like, yes. I said, you better run. <laughs> they take off screaming, and I try to catch them. So I don't know if those will be fun when they're in their teens, but right now it's it's working. Hey, soak it up now, right? Yeah. Um, that's fun. Is there, uh, is there anything – that you've um that maybe maybe you're approaching a little bit different with the grandkids than you did with with your own is there anything maybe you've softened up on or are seeing things a little bit differently we're not in charge of discipline but the fact that we are around them a lot Mm -hmm. we need to uh, abide by the parents rules yep so we're 100 percent behind john and anna and how they want to raise them and and so we'll try to stay within the rules but you know, sometimes when they're not looking, they may get a little more candy here and there. <laughs> they may get a few little things when mom and dad aren't watching, but for the most part, we keep, we keep them in line. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Um, it's, it's fun. It's fun here. And you kind of reflect on that. My parents are, are in the same boat and it's been fun watching them be, you know, grandparents to, to our kids and my in-laws as well. And, seeing them have their own relationship and, you know, we're working through the same thing. Like you mentioned, figuring out the, the handoff, but like, you know, if they go to grandma, grandpa's like discipline's got to be close to consistent at least. And, right. You know, we've got to work through some of those things too. Um, so I can, I can definitely relate to that. Um, so as we, as we kind of transition here towards the, the tail end of the show, I, I want to talk a little bit more, I guess, about, about you specifically, and, uh, you know, considering everything that you have experienced in your life, coach, you know, everything in the football world obviously speaks for itself, a long, successful, beautiful marriage, beautiful children, grandchildren, the whole thing. Now, now you're an author, which is so cool. And you've been able to kind of immortalize all these experiences and thoughts and lessons. When you reflect back on everything that you've experienced, what, what would you say you are the most proud of, um, in your life so far? Right. Well, um, just trying to be obedient to God. I mean, before I became a believer, it was, it was all about me. It was very, you know, so many self-centered and selfish goals that I had. 
and attitudes that I had towards other people, uh, just not very good. But, you know, once I became a believer and I just totally submitted my life to God and just said, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. You say, go, I'll go. And uh, if it means staying in coaching, great. If it doesn't, uh, I'll go. And so, you know, that's a freeing experience to know that uh, you're trying to stay in his will. And I think, you know, I, I fasted one time and the goal of my fast was to audibly hear God say, this is what I want you to do. Mm-hmm. And after uh, the 40 days were over, um, what I felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me was that God loves me and uh, he wants a relationship with me and he wants me to love him back. And uh, the best way to love him, best way to show our love to God is to obey him. It's just it's like a father. You want to feel loved by your kids? They obey you. And so, but how do you obey God? You got to know what he wants. Well, how do you know what he wants? You, you got to get in his word. You got to go to Sunday. You got to go to Sunday school. You got to go to Bible studies. You got to hear what your pastor has to say. And then, and then obey, you know, when you feel like the Holy Spirit's saying, do it. I mean, that was the guide for us on decisions. If, if we had peace that we felt the Holy Spirit was in agreement with the decision, we'd do it whether we were scared or not. And, uh, it's kind of how we operated. Yeah. That's I know that's a liberating thing. That's something more recently in my life, my wife and I have both been, I think, drawing closer to and leaning into that a lot more and, and book, trying to become more obedient and not seek counsel from really anywhere else first, but from God and to really listen to that and, and see whatever it is, try to take right. our, maybe our own emotion or bias out of it. And, just and really I'll say it. this too. I, I think people, kind of get worried about well how do you hear from god you know how do i know mm-hmm. and if you take time to prayerfully consider things and you and you are you're peaceful and you try to listen to what the spirit's saying to you i believe this even if it didn't come from god but you think it did if you think god was telling you to do something and you did it out of obedience to that thought i think i think god loves that because mm-hmm. he knows you know you were trying to be obedient to him and so, you know, don't don't let that hold you back to be like, is it really God? Is it not? Um, and the thing is, too, when you have a lot of time to make a decision, you can prayerfully consider things. If you have to make a decision immediately, you've got to be in a good place in your in your spiritual life that you'll make the right decision mm-hmm. more times than not, because you're you are prayed up. You are in the word. You are thinking a certain way. You're looking at life through a certain lens. And that's through, you know, the lens of. Uh, of the of God's word, you know, so it's important to be in a state of readiness mm-hmm. because sometimes decisions pop on you so fast you don't have time to think it through. Right, you're, you're like you said, you've, you you use the phrase "prayed up." You're ready. You uh, you'll be able to hear, you know, or at least sense sense the voice of God um, in those moments. So, last question for you, Coach, before I let you run. Um, in becoming, you know, a husband and a father, and as my kids start getting a little bit older, it's forced me to think about the word legacy in a different way than I ever really had. I used to think about it more in a maybe a materialistic way, and maybe maybe wealth was involved in it. But when I think about it, you know, and try to face the reality that you know one day I will move on from this earth, and uh, one day I'll, you know. Uh, hopefully have the opportunity to look back and, and, and be proud of the life that I lived. And I think about when I think about that, from that angle, that frame of mind, I think about legacy as how I impacted the people that I love the most. So like, I think about my kids with the moments and the memories and the lessons and the experiences and the things that, you know, God willing, I'm able to leave them behind on earth. Um, the things that they'll have to, to remember being by and then carry with them through the rest of their life. So if I were to kind of toss that over to you and ask you, I'd just love to ask you, what, what would you want your kids to remember about their dad? Right. Well, if you, if you start out with thinking in terms of coaching, you know, I think people get so caught up on victories and, and they should, cause you keep score for a reason and it's fun to win. Don't get me wrong. But I think in the end, when you, when you see God, just like coach Bowden went to see, went to see God face to face, 
And I don't think God said, you know, how many games you win, coach? How many championships you win? He said, what did you do with those boys that I put under your authority? And I think the same thing is true for us as, as husbands and fathers. God's going to ask us not how many deals do we make or how much money do we make or how, how famous were we or whatever he's going to say. What did you do with the wife that I put you in authority over and, and your children? What did what'd you do with them? And uh, so that's got to be our goal is to live a life that God would, would be pleased with when it comes to those types of things. That's, that's great. Yeah. Could, couldn't agree more. Couldn't say it any better myself. So won't even try coach Rick. Thank you so much for making some time for us today. Uh, like I said, such an honor to have you on, to have the opportunity to, uh, to chat with you a little bit. Um, I can't recommend your book highly enough. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just a huge fan of it. I was, I was taking notes, but getting ready for the conversation and I was, listening to the book again. And I was trying to pick apart some of the, some of the things that I wanted to talk to you about it. And I realized that I just had like, I basically rewrote the outline for the whole book because I thought it was all so dense. I mean, the lessons in it, you know, starting with faith, integrity, you know, preparation, gratitude, grace, relationships, communication, responsibility, loyalty, like all these lessons are so deeply ingrained in that book. And they're told so well through the stories and your experiences and, you know, from the football world and everything. Um, just I can't recommend it highly enough. So I'll tell everybody that they uh, definitely need to go check it out. So, Coach, yeah. where, where's the best place for, for people to, to find the book if, uh, if they're interested? Right. Well, I think it's wherever books are sold, like they say. Um, I know you could get it uh, on Amazon. I know you could get it. I have a website called makethecallbook.com. You can get it off the website. And uh, there was a time when you couldn't find them in a bookstore because they sold out real fast. But I think they're back in stores again as well. So make a great Christmas gift. That's that's for sure. There we go. Yeah. And I'll, I'll link, I'll put the link in our show notes and everything so everybody can uh, hop over to it uh, very quickly. But yeah, thanks again, coach. It, it, it meant the world to, to chat with you. Thanks so much for making time. I will see you. All right, everybody. That's it. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, do me a huge favor and subscribe to the show or leave us a rating and review. We can't thank you enough for your support. Until next time, remember to love and lead from the front. See ya.